When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson, and I'm looking forward to all these movies we have on deck today. Hi, I'm looking forward to all these movies we have on deck today. I'm Dad. Oh, no. Kevin just launching right into all of the bad dad jokes. I'm I'm excited about this. Dad jokes are appropriate for an episode where we focus on dad movies. This week, we've got a couple of great ones for you. First up is the franchise sequel that almost wasn't. Tom Cruise's Top Gun Maverick. And then following up with that, we have the right stuff in which Kevin and I are going to prove whether or not we also have the right stuff by trying to figure out if we can get all of these other bad dad jokes to take flight. (laughs) We're going to shoot the moon here on (laughs) Seeing and Believing, episode 335. Stick around for more. What kind of mission is this? Everyone here is the best there is. Who's going to teach us? Today we'll start with what you only think you know. Nice. What the hell? Easy, Maverick. Let's try not to get fired on the first day. We're going into combat on a level never seen. You think up there you're dead. Believe me. My dad believed in you. I'm not going to make the same mistake. Yes, we're here on episode 335 of Seeing and Believing, and I don't think we've quite exhausted our reserve of dad jokes from that that opening there, so... Oh, no, no. Although, from one non-dad to a regular dad, you better get used to this. I, I kind of see this episode as a as a training ground, as you will, the, mm-hmm. the top gun of dad jokes because I I feel like I need to really bone up on that stuff and become proficient fast because the day is coming when my son's going to expect certain things from me as a father. We'll get you airborne on that eventually. All right. Yeah. Good good to hear. Uh, Listeners, we are going to be talking about a couple of movies that, if, if not the quintessential dad movies, they are at least movies that would play well for dads everywhere. Um, <laughs> there's what well, we might get into a little bit later, exactly what defines a dad movie and what makes them. But needless to say, I, I, I think that both of the movies we're going to be talking about are, are worthy entries in that subgenre. Good grist for the mill for sure. <laughs> so uh, the right stuff is coming up in the second half of the segment, but let's jump right into a movie that I frankly was not sure was ever going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the sequel to the original Top Gun titled Top Gun Maverick. It had uh, some some production woes that was kind of in the works for a while. I didn't think it could happen, but it's here, and we're going to talk about it on the episode today. This movie finds Tom Cruise's Pete Mitchell, a.k.a. Maverick, recently grounded after pushing a jet past Mach 10 
and wrecking it. He returns to the Top Gun flight school, this time not as a hotshot, swaggering young ace, but as an instructor tasked with preparing the younger generation of hotshots for a near-impossible mission to destroy a uranium enrichment site. So, Sarah, this is a a weird case of... I, I feel like a big... Uh, aspect of Tom Cruise's persona is sort of the eternal youth. He never seems mm-hmm. to age on screen, and yet this is a movie that is kind of about uh, Maverick's coming to terms with the fact that he is aging, and to, to some extent the world is kind of passing him by. And I'm kind of curious to know how that works for you, this being a franchise sequel. Do you think that it pays off that the possibilities inherent in that premise or do you think that it falls into the category of fan service for big time fans of top gun oh man and the big time fans of top gun thing is just such a such an interesting concept it's funny i feel like top gun's having a bit of a resurgence in the public i don't know i at this point and i feel really weird about that specifically because i have a very weird relationship with top gun the original movie um just as a watcher when I'm not actively watching it, worst movie ever. When I am actively watching it, coolest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and it was interesting sitting down and watching this sequel as kind of a franchise follow-up. There's a lot of very, like, I don't know, specific homage to the original in this movie. Um, a lot of callbacks to the original screenplay. Um, And at the same time, I feel like it actually almost kind of pulls it off because it takes those homages and it does something new with them. It's not just a case of somebody's going to say a line or a catchphrase. Someone's going to say, I feel the need, the need for speed, and then that's just going to be it. There are references to the original movie and they are used to call attention to the fact that Maverick is aging and He's grown as a human being in the last 30 years. I would certainly hope that he had, because otherwise he would be a very uninteresting character. Um, But the movie's doing interesting and creative stuff with those homages, I think, for the most part. Um, Which honestly surprised me, because I was really expecting this to be mostly just fan service and a lot of of planes flying really, really fast. So how did it strike you? This movie is way, way better than it has any right to be. <laughs> I, I I, mean, I don't know what to say. I, I went into Top Gun Maverick fully, ex- fully expecting it to be the latest in a long line of fan service nostalgia fests where the only reason that you would get any enjoyment out of it at all is that you have some sort of buy-in to the original cultural artifact And the main reason you're in the seat is you kind of want to relive a little bit of that magic once again. Even if it's Mm -hmm. not new, it's enough for it to retread the same ground, hit some of the same beats, have some of those nice catchphrases that we all remember so fondly from when we were 10-year-olds catching a little bit of it on cable TV. So I, I was frankly blown away by the fact that I think this is a pretty thoughtful movie for what it is. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a summer blockbuster. It's not the deepest movie in the world. But I think that within that, within those constraints, it does do some pretty interesting things with Tom Cruise's persona as an actor, Mm -hmm. the, the character of Maverick himself, and just sort of the way he is and what that might look like for 
uh, in, in somebody who is 50 years old instead of 25 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, it maybe says a little bit also about just the United States kind of moving on from the, the, fl- the youthful flush of our, you know, our military might in the, you know, in the Cold War, uh, the, the 80s especially, and kind of to a new era where we're a little bit more aware of our own frailties mm-hmm. and a little bit more aware that we're not going to be the top dog forever. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the fact that this movie does hint at all those things while also kind of delivering the goods in terms of just summer blockbuster thrills, I think is very impressive. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because I was I found myself just a little bit unsatisfied with some of the figuring of where we are as a country versus who these characters as pilots are because I I didn't quite get that consideration of us not necessarily being the top dog anymore. There is an unnamed adversary on the global stage in this movie. Um, And it is kind of unspoken to be Russia, which I think is the case in the original movie as well. And there was, there was a level of like, we're just going to set up a a uranium enrichment plant that's set off in this like other country as this unnamed adversary and we have to destroy it. And then there's no interrogation of any of the context around that situation at all whatsoever. And so that kind of still felt like um, this movie is treating, I don't know, um, the American military as the world's police. And that just felt a little bit gross to me personally, but like, eh, I don't know. (laughs) It's a complicated situation and it's kind of hard to boil that down into a a into like a blockbuster popcorn movie too, you know. I mean, the the thing about Top Gun, and, and this is probably just kind of the 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 weak the the franchise's Achilles' heel is that it's hard to tell a story about the military that gives the like the military something to do mm-hmm. that doesn't involve like going going out there somewhere and blowing up stuff mm-hmm. and maybe killing some some quote unquote bad guys. So. To some extent, I think that weakness is is baked into the material. It's mm-hmm. it is kind of politically toothless because if you can't be have any specificity about who this enemy is and why exactly it is the United States military's job to go out and blow them up, then it's hard to take a whole lot of its political commentary seriously. Mm-hmm. But I do. I, I so I think like the specifics of the politics are kind of toothless and that's partly why it's going to be such it's going to make tons of money is because no matter what your politics are you're going to have a good time with this and you can root for our heroes because there's not enough specificity about what they're doing to have anything to root against Mm -hmm. that said i think that the the fact that if we if we think of the characters of the original top gun as being somehow emblematic of the way that uh, Americans like to see ourselves as sort of as as young, as 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 powerful, uh, you know, likable, <laughs> the the heroes of our own story. Mm. Um, then it's interesting to see this movie kind of tweak that a little bit. So it's telling that the whereas the the romantic subplot in the first one maybe doesn't give the the female character a whole lot to do in this Nothing one whatsoever. Yeah. Um, Jennifer Connelly's Penny in this film 
again, she's she's kind of relegated to a subplot. She doesn't have a ton to do, but the role that romance plays in the overall narrative where uh, Maverick has to come to terms with the fact that he's not sort of the, the love him and leave him type that his uh, romancing of this character has, has real consequences and has had fallout in the past. Mm. I think that is used to um, comment on perhaps his other exploits as well. But maybe I'm just reading too much into it. I mean, also just better chemistry overall between Tom Cruise. I mean, Jennifer Connelly, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, she's, she's quite an actress, you yeah. know. Uh, maybe a, a, a slight upgrade, but she's working with stronger material too, to be fair. Definitely, yeah. And I think in this, in, in Top Gun Maverick specifically, um, I think that the other characters are also to, allowed to have a little bit more depth. So original Top Gun, it's all fairly stock characters. You have your hotshot pilots, you have your, I don't know, your, your teachers who are kind of, um, I don't know, by the book and, and very strict. And that's about all that there is to the movie. And in this one, I think there is additional levels of depth that are given to some of the more background characters. And then also um, additionally, like recognition that everybody who is being strict about the rules is because they have concerns for the lives that are underneath them as well. So John Hamm plays a two-star admiral who is very strict about what Tom Cruise's Maverick can and can't teach his students. And he has rules in place specifically to help safeguard their lives. And that's not really something that's ever really a consideration in the original movie. And I think this one, um, it's a lot about death defying like stunts and death defying like flight and being the fastest man alive, essentially. But it's also a, a lot to do with the level of safety and the safeguards that are needed in order to be able to get to that point so that you can then come home from the mission alive. Um, and that's a consideration that I just don't think that you necessarily get when you're a, a young, dumb 25-year-old. But when you are a 50-year-old who has had that life experience and who can think about those sorts of things, that's something that you're much more willing to consider. So it, it gives a little bit of maturity and depth, I think, to the story. Yeah, it stands as a as a contrast to the original as well, whereas the original, the, the uh, fate of Goose is sort of the one... Uh, the one stratagem that movie has for co- sort of complicating the war is fun kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. kind of rah rah uh, military thing like war is not all always fun in games because hey this one guy died <laughs> yeah. whereas this uh, Top Gun Maverick I was really pleased to see that a lot of its central tension is in not just accomplishing the mission and you know letting our heroes have their hero moment but also bringing them home safe and and making sure that that's a definition of success as well. John Hamm's character in training, he's very obsessed with the safety of the equipment and of the pilots. That's only because he needs them to complete the mission and it doesn't particularly matter to him uh, whether or not the pilots come home so long as the mission is completed. The mission is the number one priority for John Hamm. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tom Cruise's Maverick, he kind of he wants both and it's important to him to make the the um, success of the mission contingent on the you know all the pilots coming home alive and that grows out of the obviously the the first film's uh the the death of goose Mm -hmm. but the way that it's incorporated into this film it doesn't feel like simply 
oh, this is some of the history that all the fans know. It's it's woven into the the characters' motivations and the the narrative development as well in a way that I thought was you know for, again for a franchise sequel that's coming decades after the fact. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty impressed by that. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious to know what your thoughts are about Tom Cruise's character in particular, um, especially with that concern for life, because I feel like. A lot of what he's doing here is kind of playing counter to his public persona of, I'm going to do a lot of death-defying stunts, and I am going to be the one to do them specifically. I feel like we get a little bit of that interrogation in Mission Impossible Fallout, sort of, but this feels like it's a little bit more in-depth to me. So I, w- I was curious to know like what you think about that. Hmm. Uh Good question. I think, I, I don't know, it, it's hard to say how much of that is... Uh, the movie being intentionally intentionally interrogating it and how much of it is just um because the screenplay is written this way Hmm. um it's it's allows us to to make that connection without necessarily explicitly inviting us to Hmm. um i do think that the restraint probably in terms of not having him be the devil may care person we we know and maybe love from the first movie <laughs> is uh, mainly a consideration of just what's good storytelling. Mm. When we finally do see Maverick sort of hop in that jet and show everyone how it's done at, at the top gun school and make you know the 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 Kessel run in five parsecs or whatever the whatever the line is. Um, that moment is genuinely thrilling. You're you're really excited to see this character do what he's so well known for doing. And part of the reason we're excited is up to that point, the film's been pretty judicious with doling out those those sorts of uh, hero moments for Cruz. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, who knows how much of that is is Cruz himself kind of acting as a producer as well as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that... Joseph Kaczynski's uh, storytelling instinct might have had a play, ha- might have had a role to play in pacing the movie in such a way that those moments feel genuinely thrilling because of what he's not done up to that point. It's funny because that moment irritated me at first. Oh, did it? Yeah, okay. because I could see it coming. Like, you can see that this particular, like, Kessel Run, like you called it, um, is something that everybody else has determined is going to be impossible for them to do. Like they're not going to be able to do it in the time and under the parameters and at the speeds that they need to be able to do it. So of course Tom Cruise can do it because Tom Cruise is the best at what he does. Mm -hmm. And I found myself deeply irritated when that moment started. And then the level of the filmmaking brought me alongside with it and made me realize like, no, actually this is genuinely thrilling and I'm enjoying the experience of watching this guy be ridiculously good at his job. Um, it's a very loud movie. <laughs> it's a very fast movie. Um, but there's a clarity to the editing, I think, where you can still tell where everybody is in three-dimensional space, which is really difficult to do when you're filming dogfights. So um, even just on a technical level, I, I definitely appreciated like the level of care and time that they spend on making sure that you know exactly where every single pilot is in the air at a given time so that you can understand what level of danger they're in and what it is that they need to do next in order to be able to fulfill that mission. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I've seen uh, 
Joseph Kaczynski's other work, but I was pretty impressed with the filming of his uh, with the filming of the action sequences here. The way that uh, the editing and the sound work uh, and the the shot choices all work together to really the so the characters are not they're not great characters i i think they're all they're like like you said about the first movie they're kind of types Mm -hmm. and for the most part i don't think they're they're all that interesting qua people (laughs) but the fact that i'm not all that interested in them as people and yet the the filmmaking in these action sequences i was genuinely uh, stressed out for their safety <laughs> yeah. in these moments where you know something goes wrong or, or somebody passes out that you really you, I, I wanted them not I, I wanted them desperately I wanted them to be okay and that's not in the writing that's in the filmmaking mm-hmm. and that I think is is you know all credit to, to Kaczynski and his collaborators so Kaczynski made uh, a couple of other movies. He's made Only the Brave, which I haven't seen, um, Oblivion, which I haven't seen, Tron Legacy, which I absolutely love. Like, I genuinely love that movie. And I think a lot of the strengths of Tron Legacy are also that um, knowledge and ability to demonstrate where characters are in three-dimensional space. In Tron Legacy, obviously, it's all digital and and actually fake. Um, and there's kind of a weightlessness to it, but at the same time, you can still tell what everybody is doing, like at any given point. So um, I'm glad to I'm glad to see him doing that same work in a very different sort of movie. Even though I guess does Top Gun Maverick count as sci-fi? It feels like it almost counts as sci-fi. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's interesting because. One of the other things I liked about this movie and something that maybe plays into what I mentioned earlier about how it kind of touches a little bit on the United States being a waning imperial power mm-hmm. is that you'd think that a story about, you know, fighter pilots and, and being in these these high-tech machines would be kind of a tech fetishist dream. Mm-hmm. And probably, you know, if you know a lot about airplanes, there's probably a lot that I'm not necessarily appreciating. Mm-hmm. But it's I think it's telling and maybe intentional it, it might just be a storytelling move just to sort of make sure that these heroes have an op, you know have some sort of adversity to overcome but they are it, it's repeatedly set up that these pilots are going to have to take aircraft that are technologically outclassed mm-hmm. by by their adversaries and uh, in a in a key s- sequence of the film which is very silly yes. towards the end uh a uh, a relic from the 80s has to be called into action mm-hmm. and and put through its paces as well. Um, I, I think it's interesting that this this film kind of makes it clear that th- these artifacts of, a, of American power are kind of all that Maverick knows. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he, he says as much in, in one scene, he says, it's being a pilot isn't what I am. It's who I am. Mm-hmm. And the, the deep identification he has with this passion, I think it, it's really, it's a really good character moment for him. And it's also another way to sort of link the, looming senescence if i can be a little bit purple prose of tom cruise with the 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 looming senescence of the country that he ser- that his character serves in this film I, I again i might be reading too much into it but i think that that's it's there if you want to see it and it's 
probably very intentional that Val Kilmer plays the role that he does in this film in light of that. It's funny that you say like this could be a tech fetishist movie and and not necessarily like feels like that. And I think that that remove is very much on purpose. And I actually can see it kind of tied in with a couple of other like elements of the story. Um, we'll get back to Val Kilmer in a little bit, I think. Um, but um one thing that I find absolutely fascinating about like Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick is that they are movies that are about the military and about military life, but have absolutely no interest in representing that in a realistic way at all whatsoever. They, they don't have much interest in the people living those lives. No, definitely not. It's it's all a lot of very like big and grand symbolism, but like none of these characters speak like they're in the military. There's not enough acronyms for one. <laughs> um, and there's not enough like technological jargon and shorthand uh, for another and then there's also just like some ridiculous business where Maverick is still somehow in the military even though he should have put on two stars long long ago um, that kind of like ruins my level of like belief in the movie on a certain level just because like that's just not how rank in the military works but as a storytelling like symbol I think that it does work very well because the Top Gun movies in particular are about myth making and the myths that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And in the case of Top Gun Maverick, it's kind of trying to cut that myth down to size a little bit. Um, and so I think that that remove from the actual like bits and pieces of the technology and that remove from like what it's like to actually live a life as a Navy pilot versus what it feels like or looks like to live as like a symbol of, I don't know, American exceptionalism. I think that that works so much better than if the movie had decided that it was going to be very obsessed with like the inner workings of an F-18 or something like that. I feel like that would have derailed the point of the story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, the, the it's so interesting to uh, notice that the the one of the early scenes, kind of the scene where they where they lampshade this problem you mentioned about how Maverick is still, you know, the the rank that he is, mm -hmm. even though that's not the way the military really works. Uh, he he's, you know, standing before uh, Ed Harris's crusty old admiral. And uh, yeah, Ed Harris is, you know, he's great at playing crusty. Um, <laughs> but in that scene, it's very explicitly set up that uh, time is not on Maverick's side. That mm -hmm. he, you know, he may look like Tom Cruise, but he is a fossil, uh, according to the new world order of drones mm -hmm. and uh, and all of the uh, tactical considerations that that uh, brings along with it. And the fact that sort of the the theme of obsolete technology even maybe extends to Cruz himself, uh, I think speaks to the way that's so easy for uh, um, a military organization to view the humans in its, you know, mm. under its command as, you know, another widget or another figurine to be pushed around on a map. Mm. And I appreciated that that is called out in the very first scene and yet, maybe we'll circle around to Val Kilmer now. Mm. There's others uh, in in command who don't think that way, who see see Tom Cruise's character as something else. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I feel conflicted about Val Kilmer's appearance in this movie just because he's such a presence in the original and he's kind of relegated to the sidelines in a way that I didn't necessarily appreciate. You still get the sense that Iceman and Maverick are friends, which is kind of shocking. Um, And you get the sense that these two people have grown up and sort of matured together with each other. But I kind of wish that I had gotten a little bit more of that almost antagonistic give and take that you get in the original movie, as opposed to this other guy is just a presence who's kind of off on the sidelines. And whenever Maverick needs to be brought back into the action, there's a plot device that's going to allow him to come back. It almost feels like Maverick is sort of being pushed around on I don't know, a table by the filmmakers in a way as like a character device that just didn't quite, somehow it just didn't quite work for me. I guess I appreciate Kilmer's presence in this mostly because of the the contrast that we get when they're both on screen together. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in, in the first movie, they're, they're, you know, they're both young and beautiful and, you know, the 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 epitome of American cockiness. Mm-hmm. In this film, they they... There's still that history, but they kind of represent it, it, they they're they're foils for each other. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tom Cruise still kind of you know he he looks a lot like his younger self from thirty years ago. Who mm-hmm. knows how that happened? Val Kilmer he looks like his age, mm-hmm. and the I think it's very intentional that the film makes use of that to not let us get swept up in the in the movie star fantasy that the people on screen will be young and beautiful forever mm-hmm. and our heroes are all young you know we'll all we'll all be young and beautiful um and so and it makes clear that you know some of the the life goes on after the the camera stop rolling mm-hmm. and i appreciated that you know even though it's a small role kilmer plays a kind of a pivotal role in a lot of ways in drawing that theme out to the fore. Whereas without him, I feel like Top Gun Maverick kind of would be the empty nostalgia exercise hmm. that of my worst nightmares. <laughs> huh. huh. Interesting. Yeah, because I mean, Iceman is kind of Maverick's foil throughout the whole original movie too. But you're right in, in saying that he's kind of like, it's a different kind of foil. It's not so much different attitudes of caution versus exuberance uh, (laughs) in the first one or like by following the rules by the book versus being a maverick essentially and so much more about um i don't know the laws of physics and time kind of are always going to catch up with you um yeah no i hadn't necessarily thought about that yeah well and that's that's something that that iceman brings up uh when he's communicating with uh, Maverick in, in their big scene, he he mentions you know there's there's still time, hmm. there's still time even though his character is you know slowly uh, succumbing to to cancer, mm-hmm. there's there's something about the fact that there there's nobody who's uh, who's who's un who's who's beyond their usefulness. There's there's no there's mm-hmm. no such thing at least. There should be no such thing as somebody who's just n- not worth anything and is, is simply cast aside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I found that it's weird for me to find something poignant in, a, again, a franchise sequel to a decades-old movie. But I did find that theme to be to be poignant that um, that time is is maybe not our friend, but simply growing old is 
is not necessarily anything to be ashamed of if you can wear it with grace. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I, I just thought it was a, a really nice uh, way for uh, Kaczynski to to use Val Kilmer in, in this film mm-hmm. in a way that was not trying to paper over any any of the time that has passed between now and and the first Top Gun, mm-hmm. but to incorporate it and uh, and make it actually one of the more thematically interesting moments of the entire film. It's a miracle. Top Gun aged gracefully. <laughs> Who'd have thunk Who it? knew? <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Top Gun Maverick. It is going to be out in theaters this weekend as we speak. So. I'm assuming that a lot of you are going to be seeing it. It's probably, I think this is the film more so for me than Doctor Strange. This is the film Mm -hmm. that signals the official beginning of summer blockbuster season. I think it's a strong beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, So listeners, if you've had a chance to see this film, I'm very curious to know if you think I'm reading too much into this (laughs) or if you are as surprised as I am by this, uh, by, by this film. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there in Seeing and Believing Land, keeping the conversation about movies going. We hear from you in all sorts of ways. We Mm -hmm. hear from you on Twitter at SeeBelievePod. We hear from you in our email inbox at SeeingAndBelievingCAPC at gmail.com. Those are the places you can get a hold of us, and we had a lot of people getting a hold of us this week, Sarah. We sure did. Um, I took the opportunity to... Um, ask people what their favorite dad movies were, since we are talking about two extremely dad movies this particular week. Yeah, I. So I, I think we should, you know, we should not share what our listeners had to say about what their favorite dad movies are. Mm-hmm. Then after that, I think we have to have a discussion about what dad movies act like. What what the definition of a dad movie is? It's a feeling, Kevin. There's no rules. <laughs> it's oh, just it's, does oh, it feel it's just like vibes? a dad movie? Okay. It's, it's definitely just vibes. No, I, I mean, I feel like it's any movie that has a lot to do with process and about men being very good at their jobs. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So any Michael Mann movie, I feel like, counts as a good dad movie. Okay. Yeah. I can I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. And also uh, movies about boats and warfare. <laughs> warfare, I, I feel like, figures prominently as well. So what, what did our listeners come up with? Uh, Abby Olchesi gave me a good boat dad movie um, with Master and Commander, which she says is the ultimate boat dad movie, except no substitutes. Love that pick. I'm also a Hunt for Red October person, so I will accept the occasional substitute. (laughs) Um, We also heard from Lindsay Dunn, who said The Bridge on the River Kwai, which I gather is the ultimate dad movie. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, I mean, that's definitely going to be a watch list segment for sure. Great movie and kind of an out of the box pick. Like I was was thinking kind of like, you know, Mm. Tom Clancy kind of dad movie, but... Mm. Lindsay is absolutely right that The Bridge on the River Kwai is sort of like the movie that you sit down on a Saturday afternoon with your dad or your granddad and you watch it. Yeah. And it's, it works like gangbusters. I feel like any David Lean movie should probably just be honorary dad movie. Well, I mean, Brief Encounter, though, yeah. I, is a masterpiece, but not it doesn't scream dad movie to me. For sensitive dads, I think. Sensitive dads. Yes. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll take that. That'll be my label. I'll be, the, I'll be a sensitive dad. <laughs> And uh, we also heard from Ron Sturry, who said, uh, Unforgiven, since he is a granddad. Um, Also a good pick. Uh, Also a movie 
I still haven't seen, and I love revisionist westerns, so Ooh. maybe another potential watch list pick. Oh, Unforgiven is is so good. Thanks for for that pick, Ron. We also heard from Elijah Olson, who shared The Count of Monte Cristo and The Big Country as two potential dad movie picks. Uh, I've seen a Count of Monte Cristo. I'm not sure if it's the Count of Monte Cristo that uh, Elijah is thinking of. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, And I have not seen The Big Country at all, so that's maybe a gap for both of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We also heard from Christian Haymaker, who uh, mentioned that uh, Joseph Kosinski also directed a little movie called Only the Brave, mm-hmm. which he thinks is a quintessential dad movie as well. So I don't know. Maybe Kosinski is going to be the go-to director for dad movies in the future. It's a pretty recent movie, if I remember right. I remember seeing some buzz about it. Um, yeah, Only the Brave came out in 2017, and uh, it's about firefighters. And that that feels very dad movie to me. It's and it's got some uh, overlap in the cast as well. There's a uh, you know Miles Teller's in that film, mm. uh, Jennifer Connelly too. So you know, uh, plenty of overlap with Top Gun Maverick in that area. Uh, we also heard from Ron Sturry, switching gears a little bit f- away from dad movies to parallel mothers. Uh, hey, gender uh, parody. So <laughs> in there our we time. go. Um, so uh, listeners who heard last week's episode where we reviewed parallel mothers, that was Ron's uh, Patreon pick for us that he's uh, pledging at the $10 a month level, which allows him to select one movie every year for us to review on the air. Mm-hmm. And parallel mothers was his pick. So Needless to say, I was really interested to know what his thoughts were on our review of that film. Uh, And he had a lot of them. Uh, Thank you, Ron, so much for uh, your email. It was Mm -hmm. really long and thoughtful. We can't read it all on the air here. But I just want to share this one excerpt from it where he he takes issue with something I said during the (laughs) review. He, he says, Kevin, you said that you would turn the, you would use the term reconciliation rather than forgiveness to describe the final relationship between the two women. But when I look up that term, it sounds like more of a legal term to resort friendship or harmony, to make consistent or congruous, to reconcile an ideal with reality, or to cause to submit to or accept something unpleasant. Hmm. And Ron mentions that there's no love implied in that. He says, I think Anna went further than that, just as Christ tells us as Christians we must do, even to those who hate us. Again, I enjoyed your analysis of parallel mothers. Even if I disagree with some of your conclusions, keep up the good work. I will probably have a film that I will want you to review next year after I go, God willing, to the Traverse City Film Festival in July. Looking forward to hearing that pick for sure. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for writing in, Ron. And uh, for all of our listeners out there who thinks like it sounds like a pretty great deal to select one movie that we have to talk about on air, you can go over to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast check out the different reward tiers but the ten dollar month level that's the one you're looking for Mm -hmm. it's a pretty good one as ron can probably attest don't go anywhere we're going to get back into dad movies with the right stuff so now it's time for the watch list segment the part of the show where one of us shares a movie that we have seen and love with the other person who has not yet seen it 
and hopefully will love it after <laughs> the conversation that we're about to have. So, Sarah, for uh, this week's segment, you picked Philip Kaufman's 1983 film, The Right Stuff, for the watch list. The Right Stuff is another movie about cocky pilots and the need for speed, except this one is based on fact. Philip Kaufman's film, which is based on journalist Tom Wolfe's nonfiction book of the same title, traces the origins of the United States space program, prime territory for dad movies, Mm -hmm. from the efforts of pilots Chuck Yeager to break the sound barrier for the first time in 1940s California, to the seven Mercury program astronauts who became the first Americans to fly in space. So, Sarah, I mean, obviously it's pretty clear why this is a fitting pairing with the Top Gun franchise in terms of its subject matter, Mm -hmm. but I'd love to know more about why you have affection for this movie in particular. Out of all the other dad movies about pilots and the golden age of space travel (laughs) that would have been fitting pairings on this week's episode, why the right stuff? Um, I think it gets back to that question of myth-making, really. I think that The Right Stuff is really smart about the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we need to tell in order to get to achieve certain goals, Um, I think. And in this one in particular, I think The Right Stuff does a very good job of, of both mythologizing the astronauts who were part of the Mercury space program, but it also does a good job of interrogating why we mythologize them in the first place and why these particular men and why were they chosen over anybody else. Um, and the character, I think, that actually encapsulates all of that the most for me um, actually isn't a character who's in the Mercury space program at all. It's the character of Chuck Yeager, um, who's played by Sam Shepard um, absolutely beautifully. He kind of starts off in sort of a prologue section of the movie, like you'd mentioned, attempting to break the sound barrier. And then he keeps recurring like throughout the rest of the movie. His story's sort of folded in with the rest of the Mercury program, but long after he's stopped being a test pilot himself. Um, And he's just kind of left, not necessarily sitting by the wayside, not necessarily like resting on his laurels, but he's watching the world go by after the world has long forgotten about him and what he's done. And the camera treats him as almost like a cowboy. Like there's, there are a couple of sequences even where he's riding a horse through the California desert. Um, incredible sequence where he's riding with uh, Glennis, his wife, and they're chasing each other throughout the desert and everything's at sunset. And there's these strange looking Joshua trees off in the background and in the distance. And then the movie sort of derails that cowboy persona, that myth making by dumping him in the brush. Like he, he literally gets thrown by his horse. Um, and he's left to kind of dust himself off and pick himself back up again and realize like, oh, shoot, I've broken my ribs. I don't know if I'm going to be able to break the sound barrier today as one does. Um, And I think that the movie is very smart about presenting him both for who he was as just like a very fascinating person in his own right and a very interesting and hardworking and, and incredible person in his own right. And then also representing him as someone who is kind of held up as a trophy isn't the right word for it, but almost like an, an ideal who isn't actually a real human being on a certain level and like what that does to a person as well. So that's that's one of the many reasons why I like the right stuff. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you, that you talk about the myth-making of this film because I absolutely agree with you that, I mean, probably like most, if not all movies about the space program, there is kind of this, this enduring, 
it it's it feels like almost in some ways the quintessential American legend, at mm-hmm. least of the 20th century, where uh, good old-fashioned American know-how and ingenuity mm-hmm. um, came together and uh, allowed us to do great feats. Um, and there, there, I don't know. There's and, and the fact that it was kind of built from very humble origins to become obviously the first program to reach to put a man on the moon Mm -hmm. that's that again feels very american it's almost like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps for the space age um and yet i I think what's interesting to me about this movie is that for all that myth making it is surprisingly unglamorous about some aspects of the Mm. space program i mean we literally get a scene where al Shepard has to wet himself because he's in a capsule and there's there's no bathroom Mm -hmm. you're just gonna have to either hold it or go because you're going to go into space whether you like it or not Mm -hmm. and those moments where it kind of to to if you'll forgive the pun brings the space program back down to earth <laughs> i think does a lot to um make this movie feel um like it's more than just an exercise in uh cheerleading uh american specifically american mythology and do something in addition to that because mm-hmm. it's definitely doing that but it does more than that as well and i think that for all the reasons you mentioned and more, it succeeds at that. Mm-hmm. That scene where Al Shepard um, has to wet himself in in the capsule, I think, also speaks to how these men weren't necessarily like considered to be people on a certain level um, because they were so mythologized and held up both as heroes for, I don't know, American exceptionalism and also... Um, the scientists don't really necessarily think of them as anything other than just bodies to put into space. Specifically monkeys. Yes, yeah. And and they're continually compared to monkeys and they're continually like all of their requests for why don't why can't you put a window in the capsule? Or like why can't we have control? Like we're pilots, we should be allowed to do our jobs instead of just being, you know, bodies that were tested to be, you know, scientifically the most exceptional people. Um, I think that that scene does a really good job of showing uh how the scientists didn't necessarily think through all of the the important logistics of putting a man into space because if everything had gone smoothly then this wouldn't have been a problem in the first place but obviously nothing ever goes smoothly when you're strapping a man to a rocket and then launching him into space yeah there's uh it's interesting all and i think that this is maybe another quintessential aspect of the quote-unquote dad movie is the the way that these these uh astronauts are are framed as sort of it's it being them almost against the world there's a a press Mm -hmm. corps that is just hounding them constantly hounding them and their families Mm -hmm. and we'll 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 have to talk about those families because i think that's another thing that really sets this movie apart Mm -hmm. um but there there's the press that's constantly hounding them there are the the government men who want only wants to score political points by having a photo op with the with the American heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are the scientists who are sort of buffoonishly assuming that oh, why would we need to plan for somebody needing to go to the bathroom, or why would we have to think about a pilot possibly getting nervous about his capsule sinking into the ocean? Yeah, all these things um, and are are specific are explicitly set up. 
in contrast to these seven men who are doing great things for their country and know what they need if only other people would just (laughs) sit down and listen. (laughs) And that just feels, again, just very quintessentially dad movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of that competence in the face of, of, you know, I don't know not ideal circumstances. It's interesting too, because I think that a lot of these men in the Mercury um, mission all kind of think of themselves as being the best of the best to begin with. And they're also made into myths and made into greatness sort of in spite of themselves in a lot of different ways too. And one of the things that I really love about this movie is they are allowed to have flaws and they are allowed to be like, not necessarily the best people in some cases. Um, Scott Glenn, Al Shepard, his character is a racist and he's awful and the movie calls him to task for it, but it also doesn't make it like into a, an object lesson in how to be a good person either. Um, a lot of the other men are just incredibly cocky. They're, they're the mavericks of their day, essentially. So I'm glad you, you brought that up because Dennis Quaid in this movie was a revelation to me. I oh, had really? Not, I had no idea. So when he's first introduced, he's wearing sunglasses and he's wearing the smirk. And for a second, I was, I was like, did I misremember something is tom cruise in this movie because the smirk is exactly the smirk that cruise wears mm-hmm. in top gun yes <laughs> which is i mean i don't want to accuse tom cruise of copycat of being a copycat of dennis quaid but it kind of seems like dennis quaid set the template for the uber cocky flyboy, mm-hmm. um and everyone after that has just been sort of playing variations on that theme and, it's it's a great performance and he's still lovable at the same time i hate cocky people in real life but uh-huh. i do love him in this um a couple of the other characters that i love probably more than dennis quaid's performance although dennis quaid's is a very good one um i love ed harris in this movie so he's, much i do too yeah he's just <laughs> he's good <laughs> you know like and and i think it's very hard to portray like a well-grounded even-keeled person who is inherently good at their core without making them kind of boring sometimes without and, making them boring or or insincere somehow yes and he's very sincere mm-hmm. yeah 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 the, there's a there's a route and i think kind of the moment that clinches it for me is uh his his wife who uh uh, she has a stutter, and so she doesn't want to be in the public eye. She doesn't want to be interviewed uh, by the press. Um, she's under a lot of pressure from no one less than the vice president of the United States to appear in a photo op with him and do an interview with him because mm-hmm. obviously it'll, it'll burnish his image. And she she simply refuses, and so they literally um, ha- try to have John Glenn, quote-unquote, pull rank on her to say to try to cajole her into doing what she doesn't want to do and he says i'm 100 behind you i support you Mm -hmm. you don't have to do this if you don't want to (laughs) and he basically argues the entire american government into submission on behalf of his wife that's wonderful yeah i love that scene ed harris feminist icon (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really great and and that's i i think I, like you said, it's just it's great to see a movie that's that's able to portray a character as good without, on one hand, turning him to a you know a, a perfect saint or uh, some sort of insincere you know person. No, he's just that's just who he is, and it's it's so nice to see that. 
on, on screen. Annie Glenn, also played by Mary Jo Deschanel, who happens to have been married to Caleb Deschanel, who sh- was the cinematographer for this movie. Okay. Yeah, and was nominated for an Oscar for it also. Inc- Deservedly. Incredible cinematography for this. Um and it's the kind that also doesn't necessarily, I feel like, call attention to it. There's not a ton that's too showy about it, but it's also not workmanlike either. I think it's doing exactly what it needs to do in order to be able to put these characters up on the pedestal that they're on on this movie, but without, I don't know, trying to do too much or be too much. It's it's just there to showcase them and their story in, in some interesting ways. You know, I... I, I it is very matter of fact in some ways, but mm-hmm. I think that maybe the thing that I like the most about this film mm-hmm. are some of the, these flight sequences that Kaufman and Deschanel shoot that almost put me in mind of the Beyond the Infinite sequence from 2001, mm-hmm. where, uh, for for example, in, an early, in the early sequence where Chuck Yeager is breaking the sound barrier, um, you know, we obviously have these these cuts between him in the cockpit and the airplane streaking across the sky. Mm-hmm. But then we also get uh, essentially cockpit views where we kind of get a view of what Jaeger is seeing or maybe experiencing as he's going faster than any other person has gone before in history. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kaufman... It's it's very impressionistic. It's there. There's just a lot of colors. There's not a lot of shapes. Um, the the camera kind of you know tilts one way and then another. And I think it's it's not a literal representation of what the view out, out of the cockpit is, mm-hmm. but it's very wonderful um, representation of probably what it felt like to just be going that fast and to not really know. If you, the plane was going to blow up underneath you in that moment, yeah. and yet the sheer exhilaration of that speed, all of that's bundled up into those sequences. And I think that that's just, it's filmic language that can't be replicated any other way. Yeah, like really lovely. It's almost pastel, which is a mm-hmm. weird color to include in, in a color palette for this, I think. There's a lot of like gunmetal grays and like very, very hard silvers. And then a lot of the flight sequences are in like softer pastels. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said, impressionistic. Some, some of them kind of look like a Monet painting. Yeah. It's uh, and so I think that that, I mean, I love Apollo 13. Apollo Mm -hmm. 13 is probably the the movie that kind of got me into space movies about the space program. I think it's a, it's a, it's a strong movie. Um, But one thing that, the right stuff has that Apollo 13 doesn't have is kind of that willingness to be a little bit more experimental with mm. the visuals rather than simply, you know, choosing shots and uh, storyboarding out sequences in ways that simply give us all the narrative information we need to move the story forward. Kaufman does take some time to maybe spend some time with Chuck Yeager just riding his horse across the desert mm-hmm. or uh, or these more impressionistic cockpit sequences or even the, the scene where uh, John Glenn sees some mysterious firefly-like lights outside of his capsule window as been, he's orbiting the Earth. I've been meaning to look that up to see if that actually happened, and I'm, I'm not sure. So I feel like I have failed dads everywhere by not doing the <laughs> research. I, I'm sure that if, if we have any, any listeners out there who can uh, issue a correction on our behalf, we're, we're all ears. But I, I've, it's very telling that that's kind of really the only... That that's the primary portion of uh, John Glenn's 
space flight that we get. It's not, mm. you know, him doing doing switches. It's the um, it's him kind of just being in awe of being where he is, mm. and just it's a it's a quiet moment that leaves the the techno babble aside for a second and just lets us exist in that moment with him. And I think it's and it's not really showy in special effects either. It's pretty basic special effects and yet it just it uh has a a really great impact i think there's a level of romance to it and i think that's that's one of the things that this movie does very Mm. well is it gets at the level of romance of exploration and space flight and doing something that nobody else has ever managed to do before um and it kind of ties in with one of my other favorite sequences (laughs) involving chuck yeager i'm going to keep coming back to chuck yeager just because i love him as a character in this movie um, before he gets on the X-1 for his his flight in 1947, where he finally breaks the sound barrier, he's on horseback and um, he's left a bar and there's the plane being refueled in front of him. And the way that it's shot, it almost looks like a dragon. Like it's literally shooting mm. flames out of its tail as they're getting it ready for its flight the next day. And he's on a horse. So he just kind of comes up over a hill to look down at it. And it kind of looks like it's crouched, like it's a predator. Mm. Um, it's a very squat, stubby plane. And he stops for a second and he regards it almost like he's locking eyes with it. And then he just goes around it and he keeps on going because he knows he's going to actually have to face off against it the next morning. And I think that that level of like understated romance is what really, really works about this movie for me. That's a really good point. Uh, that's that's a great way to put it. This movie is romantic about... It, it doesn't for it doesn't lose sight in its obsession with process and you know, kind of like the the more uh, mundane aspects of space travel. It never loses sight of the fact that this is something that uh, humanity you know only dreamed of before and yet was achieving in real time. Mm-hmm. And I I think Kaufman's ability to capture both sides of that coin is is what makes the right stuff a. a a special film yeah yeah and he does both sides incredibly well too like you get just how gross and awful the the military housing is for the families like you get that sense of abandonment when they're no longer useful for the narrative for the mercury story um veronica cartwright in this movie is absolutely fantastic as gus grissom's wife um and her disappointment at not being given like the same level of ticker tape parade like reception mm-hmm. after he's come back and the landing's been botched and the space capsule's been lost. Um, and I think like her level of disappointment and feeling like her sense that the military owes her because she and her family have sacrificed so much and her husband could have died. And all they can do is give them like kind of an ignominious thank you and like a hotel suite with some snacks. And that's just about <laughs> it. Like that level of disappointment feels so real and grounded as well. Um that it kind of it doesn't strip away any of the romance of any of the truly romantic moments, but I think it does bring them down to earth and ground them in a way that feels realistic to me. Yeah, well, uh, let's talk about the the astronauts' families because I think that's also partly to uh, credit for what keeps this movie from being merely an exercise in self mythologization. Mm. The these these uh, women who are the kind of 
standing off to the side while their husbands get all the plaudits, they're making very real sacrifices as well. They're they're also being hounded by the press. Mm-hmm. They're also under a lot of pressure to sort of be the, the dutiful spouse and to essentially manage everything uh, while their husbands are in space, not knowing if they're ever going to see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Kaufman does, he gives us a lot of time with them. And far from kind of just making them either... Um, plot devices where their um, dissatisfaction is sort of a, an, another obstacle to be over overcome or to to provide color for the men's story. It's it their their emotions surrounding these events are just as integral a part of the story as the men's part and that's that's also nice to see it's so much better than like the shorthand of this is the astronaut's wife and she's going to sit next to a radio and she's going to look she's very to very be, worried yeah, for the rest she's of going the movie to cry and she's going to be strong but she's also we're not interested in her mm-hmm. and i think and the movie's very interested in all of them all of them mm-hmm. yes absolutely i agree well uh thanks for sharing this with me i i i feel like now might be the time where I have to uh, issue an apology to Wade Bearden, uh, my, <laughs> our, my erstwhile co-host, uh, sing the praises of the right stuff um, many moons ago, and I did not get around to seeing it until just now. So, Wade, I'm sorry it's taken me this long, but I hope that this conversation is is some small way of, of making it up to you. You're welcome, Wade. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that's our uh, our watch list segment for this week. Next week, we've got uh, what I think is going to be a pretty interesting episode. Um, we're going to be talking about Alex Garland's men. So more dudes. More Just dudes. More dudes next week. More dudes. These are scary dudes, though, yes. not heroic dudes. Um, and I think that it, for any listeners who want to watch along for next week's watch list segment, I'm going to pair with a movie in which Rory Kinnear plays every male role. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pair that with a film in which Tom Noonan plays almost every male <laughs> role and every female role. <laughs> it's uh, 2015's Anomalisa, directed by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. Uh, this is, you know, it's a quintessential Kaufman film in a lot of ways, but I think it'll make a good pairing with uh, with men. And uh, hopefully it'll get some more attention because this movie kind of sank without a trace when it came out in 2015. And mm. that is a darn shame because it's very good. Yeah. I didn't see it yet, but I'm going to see it next week and I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, listeners, that is our episode for this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan, and my co-host is Sarah Welch Larson. We'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.